music, whether it's classical or whether it's contemporary, finishes well. You know how it goes with music. Good music will have a theme or a hook running through it. And then at the end of the piece or of the song, it seems to all be gathered together. It seems to work for a glorious and satisfying conclusion to the whole piece. And we see the same sort of thing with Matthew as he concludes his historical biography of Jesus. He's been consistently emphasizing that Jesus is king. It's one of the themes, the major hook that runs through the whole of this book. We noticed it actually from the very first verse of the gospel where we read this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And to the Jewish reader, they knew that Messiah meant that deliverer king. It continues with the question of the wise men. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. It's seen as Matthew identifies the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as a fulfillment of prophecy. There in 21 verse 5, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Pilate, at the trial, asks this question. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Or the Roman soldiers, the Roman soldiers mock Jesus with this accusation. Here's the same theme, the same hook running through. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. And the mocking continues with the death charge that was written above the dying prisoner above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And the religious leaders who are gathered there around the foot of the cross join in. Chapter 27, verse 42, he saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. So you've got this hook, you've got this theme running continually through this particular gospel that Jesus is the king. And so as he concludes, Matthew draws this together and he repeats it with an even greater force and clarity and power as he reveals the crucified and risen Jesus Christ appearing to his disciples. And they prostrate themselves before him. For he is the king. There's just three simple things I want to say. The first is this. Number one, the king rules. The king rules. You see, the disciples have gone up north to Galilee. And there on a designated mountaintop, they meet up with the resurrected Jesus. At first, 
Some aren't sure. They hesitate. Actually, that's a better translation than that word doubted in verse 17. They hesitate. Can it, can it really be him? You can understand this. Can a dead man come back to life? Is that really Jesus? How, how could that possibly be? But then Jesus draws closer. And it becomes obvious it's him. And then he speaks. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now actually, this isn't new to the disciples. They'd heard it and seen it many times before in their three years with Jesus. But the point is, they just hadn't got it. Jesus had said things like this before. Jesus had told them that God the Father had given him all authority. But it didn't register. It was too big. It was too far out of their frame of reference. We read this back in Matthew 11, verse 27. Jesus told them this. All things have been committed to me by my Father. It's what he's saying here. But now, the resurrection had changed their understanding. They now saw with their own eyes that this Jesus, this resurrected Jesus, this alive Jesus was no mere man. But rather he was indeed the very one that he claimed to be, the Son of God. In fact, for those disciples, it was all beginning to fall into place. Those very words that Jesus had just used resonated in their Jewish minds. Wasn't this what had been promised 600 years before in a vision that was given to Daniel? For we read this in Daniel 7 verse 14. He, that is the Son of Man, the Son of God, he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And the disciples said, yeah, yeah, we, we now see it. We, we now get it. This Jesus was none other than the king of kings, the ruler over all, the one who had all power and authority. They got it. I wonder if you have. A few weeks ago, Kath and I pulled into T-Bay services on the M6 in the Lake District. It was twilight. And we were greeted by one of the most remarkable sights. Thousands upon thousands of starlings murmurating. Or if, I, if I'm allowed to make a verb out of a noun. But there they were, doing what they do. It was the most beautiful, complex, choreographed display we'd ever seen. And you know what? The king knows the flight path of each one of them. You see, he has all authority. To paraphrase John Piper, he has authority over the natural universe, over stars and galaxies and, and planets and meteorites. He has authority over winds and rain and lightning and thunder. He has authority over great animals and he has authority over tiny atoms and subatomic particles. 
He has authority over your DNA and over your chromosomes. He has authority over all bacteria. He has authority over your body, every beat of your heart, every breath of your diaphragm, every spark across a million synapses in your brains. He has authority over all nations and governments. He has authority over all armies and weapons. He has authority over all industry and business and finance and currency. He has authority over all education and research and science and discovery. He has authority over all crime and over all violence. He has authority over all families and neighborhoods and over the church and over every soul and every moment of every life that has been or ever will be lived. He is king. My friends, there is nothing in heaven or on earth over which Jesus does not have authority. Where he does not have the right and the power to do with as he pleases. He is king. My friends, you are not the products of blind chance. Your life is not random and meaningless. You are known to God. Now that can either be the most terrifying thought imaginable to our egotism and pride. You're here. You thought you were in control. And you are hearing that there is a living God who has authority over all things, including you. And that can be shattering. Or to Christians here this morning, it is the most glorious and comforting truth that I could ever engage with. My life is not random. It is held by the one who knows me and loves me and has died to rescue me. My friends, whatever you're going through, Christian brother or sister, the reality is this, Jesus rules. He rules over little children and their families. He rules over those who have been called into his presence this morning and those who remain. Jesus is king. The king rules. But then secondly, I, I notice from this passage, the king commands. The king commands. You see, having established his authority over all, Jesus then goes on to issue one command. It's here in verses 19 through to 20. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Do you see that? Therefore, therefore, in the light of what you now recognize as true, that Jesus has all authority, this flows from it. And, and actually, in the Greek language that we have here in Matthew's gospel, there's only one command listed. Now, if I was to ask you, what is this command? Uh, you'd probably look at the passage uh, and you would say, well, it, it's where Jesus says, go. No, no, that is not the command uh, that is here. In reality, the command is, the imperative is, that they should make disciples. 
In other words, because Jesus is king, all people everywhere are called upon to live under his gracious rule. For that's the essence of discipleship, to live a life under good King Jesus. But, but Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say, okay, make disciples. No, he explains the three ways we are to disciple others. The three ways we are to call them to live under his authority and rule. Now, although these words are not commands, the way this is constructed in the Greek suggests these words are more than mere suggestions. See, Jesus says we are to baptize them. You see, this is what happens when people become followers of Jesus. It's a public act of repentance where someone acknowledges their rebellion and guilt and shame before a holy God. It is quite countercultural. It is not what we, with our arrogant, self-affirming age, are used to, but it is where the Christian takes a stand and says, I want you to know this. I was a sinner. I was heading nowhere but hell, but God in his mercy and grace has saved me, and he has made me clean. And as they are baptized, it is a public declaration of their new identification with the community of those who love to live under the good rule of King Jesus. And it's also a commitment to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we're baptized in their name. You see, when we, we had Nomi was baptized last Sunday, if you were here, you'd have seen that pool open. She was baptized. What is baptism? You see, it is identifying with Jesus. That's the whole meaning of the symbolism of this action. They're going underwater. It's dying with Jesus and being raised to life again. We're one with him. We have no hope but Jesus, the crucified, risen Savior. But, but there's something else to this, you see. As, as I'm baptizing, being baptized, I'm saying, yeah, I want folks to know this is what has happened to me. I've been made new. I've got a new start. I've been made clean because of, because of Jesus. And if you're here this morning as a disciple of Jesus Christ, this act of public identification with Jesus and his church through baptism is a given. It's well nigh inconceivable that any believer should not be baptized and publicly identified as a follower of Jesus. If you're here and you are following Jesus, you say you're born again, you are following Jesus, and you haven't been baptized, I'm going, why? Look, if you want to take this further, uh, and I hope there will be people here, believers here, who say, I'm going to take the Lordship of Jesus seriously and I'm going to obey his commands. If you want to take this further, if you look at the bulletin, you'll see the next baptismal class is on Sunday the 26th of May. Have a look, register for it, do something about it, be obedient to the King. It is that act of I am publicly identifying with Jesus and with his people. So we're to baptize them. But then secondly, we're to teach them. The scripture says all that Jesus has commanded. We're to teach them. 
You see, this implies that the Christian life is not just a case of, hey, I've come in and I've made a decision for Jesus. I've sort of, I went forward at a crusade or a rally or, oh, I signed my name to a particular form and that's it. As if you've got the, it's sort of the fire insurance policy for hell, you know. Oh, it's okay, I'm not going to hell because I did something then. No, no, no. That is, that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the lordship of Jesus Christ. It teaches that someone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ is someone who is going to go on growing. It is a lifelong process of hearing and responding to all that Jesus has said and shown. You see, every believer is a disciple. Every believer should constantly be learning as the Bible is opened up. Every believer should be sharing that word with others. Every believer should be maturing and growing in their faith. I, I, I don't care how young you are in the faith. I don't care how old you are in the faith. If you are here and you are drawing breath, then you should be growing in the things of God. You may have been coming to Charlotte Chapel for decades. My brothers and sisters, we go on growing it is a lifelong process. We have never arrived. We keep looking at the word of God and understanding more and making sure that the whole of our life is brought under his lordship and rule. You see, that's why we place such an emphasis at Charlotte Chapel upon the careful preaching and teaching of the Bible. It's why Sunday ministry is so important both morning and evening. It's why our growth groups scattered around the city are a vital component of what we do as we share with each other around that word. It's why one-to-one -one reading of the Bible is practiced by so many in this congregation. And we want to help you become a mature follower, or I should say maturing follower of King Jesus. And we want you to grow and go on growing in your gifting and service. And could I say, if you're not part of this church family, but are looking and thinking about things, well, chat with us at the Connect Corner at the end of the service, at the sofas that are there on the left-hand side as you go out of the main door. There'll be someone there who'd love to talk with you, just so you can say, look, I want to grow and be more useful. I want to know more about Jesus. Maybe you want to throw in your lot with this church family and fellowship. Speak to folks there. Be obedient to what he is saying. We are to teach them all that Jesus has commanded. But the third thing is this. We are to go to all nations. We're to go to all nations. Now, can I say we need to be careful here? Because this verse has been bent out of shape by some to say stuff that was never intended. See, firstly, we need to notice this is not an instruction for an elite few. This doesn't indicate this verse that going necessarily means traveling overseas. The sense here is that every believer is to make disciples wherever they may be. See, it's not a verse confined to what we might call the professional missionary. It's for every single believer here. You're to go into the situation where God has placed you. Go there, whether that's your home community or your work community or your study community or your social community. And there, share and show 
the wonderful grace and mercies of Jesus. Secondly, we need to notice that this verse is not targeted at particular individuals, but at the church community as a whole. There's a corporate responsibility indicated here. We're to encourage and equip one another for the task of sharing the gospel. That means we want to recognize and raise up and and resource God-gifted evangelists. It means we want to encourage and pray for one another in the particular situations that we face. That's why we go to growth groups. We're in a smaller group. We share and we pray and we talk with one another about our friends and our contacts and our colleagues. And we say, oh, just pray for us here. We just really want to be able to tell them about Jesus and about his grace. It means that we help plant churches in our region where no gospel witness exists. Last year we planted Hope City Church. Next year we're planting South Queensbury Church and the one who's leading that, Adam, is the one who led our first part of our our service. You've seen him. We, We believe this is what we are called upon to do by the Bible itself. To be that church that takes our corporate responsibility seriously. Thirdly, the fact that we are to make disciples of all nations implies that the church has a particular responsibility to evangelize unreached people groups. The word used here does not mean nation states or political entities, but rather ethnic groups. Let me try and illustrate what I mean. So, uh, For example, let's take Nigeria. Nigeria is a single entity as a country, as a political unit. But within it, there are over 540 different people groups, as you'll see uh, on the screen. And and it is those smaller people groups, those ta'ethne, that are are there, that, that Jesus is saying, we've got to go and reach people from every single one of them. Or if we were to take the world as a whole, let alone Nigeria, there are 17,070 people groups, of whom 7,098 have not been reached yet with the good news about Jesus Christ. Um, You can see this uh, on this map on, on the screen, where most of these unreached people groups are located. So if you look out for the red dots, that gives us an idea, and it's possible to see what is known here as the 1040 window. It's something that's based on latitude, 10 degrees north, 40 degrees north, and um, within those boundaries, you can find most of the unreached people groups. And the reason I've identified the 1040 window is because of this shocking news. Only one out of every 10 missionaries works within those regions. Only one in 10. That is where the unreached people groups are that we are told to go and reach. One in 10 missionaries go there. And as a church, we recognize that we have a corporate responsibility to be involved in cross-cultural mission, especially to those who have never heard. That's why over the next year, you're going to see a major reorganization of our mission work here at Charlotte Chapel. Our organizing group is being reformatted. 
our mission partners will be given a higher profile. And our search to identify, train, equip, resource, and send new workers will intensify. And the reason we're doing that is not that Charlotte Chapel gets a higher profile, but that Jesus Christ might be savingly known in places where he is not recognized. We're doing it in response to the clear instruction of his word. It's because of this that we want to do these things. We're doing it so that people held in the slavery of sin might be brought under the loving and gracious and restoring rule of King Jesus. And who knows? It might be that almighty God will call you to such cross-cultural engagement. And even if the call is not to leave Scotland, the call remains to go into the communities where God has placed you. And that leads us naturally to our final point. It's this. Thirdly, the king accompanies. The king accompanies. You see, the thought of going to people you don't know and sharing with them the news about Jesus, it may really sound terrifying. And it can be even more shocking to imagine going to countries where people are not allowed to speak of Jesus or own a Bible and where that can be punishable by death. So there's nothing more comforting than to hear Christ's closing words ringing in our ears. 28 verse 20, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you, do you get that? The king of kings goes with you. The one who has all authority is there working out his plans. And so I turn expectantly in prayer. For he is able, that's why prayer occupies such a vital part of our church life because we know he is able and he goes with his people and therefore we plead with him. And I go boldly, we go boldly into the most difficult situations for he is in control. And we can face the hardest situations, even suffering and martyrdom. For all these things lie under his authority. And I know that there will not be a moment when this promise will fail. For King Jesus says his promise, his presence, will accompany his people to the very end of the age. And then, the end of the age when time is no more, all God's people will be gathered in. The great commission will be complete. And we will worship the king along with those saved out of every ethnic group on the face of this planet. Listen to these words, the vision of John given to him in Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The king rules. The king commands. The king accompanies. Let's pray.